Hey there, geeks. Adam here. Just wanted to give you a heads up before we start the episode that we had some technical difficulties just trying to get this thing recorded. It is a testament to the gentlemanly nature of our guest, Ron Mars, that he was able to wait as long as he had to before we could get all of our equipment actually operating, our software cooperating the way that it should be. So uh, you will notice that my audio quality in particular is kind of poor in comparison to everybody else's. But you're here to... Enjoy the stories of Ron Mars. Not hear me jabber John. So let's get into it. The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to another edition of The Wizard Files, the special interview series where we go behind the scenes with former staff members of Wizard Magazine and those comic book professionals who appeared in the pages of the Guide to Comics. I'm Adam. And I'm Steven. And joining us tonight is a man who likely made other comics writers green with envy when he became something of a favorite of Wizard Editorial and the fans who were reading his work on such titles as Green Lantern, Silver Surfer, Superman, Exo, Man of War, Witchblade, as well as crossover events like DC vs. Marvel or Batman, Tarzan, and so much more. So we're excited to welcome to the show this time around, Mr. Ron Mars. How you doing, Ron? Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, this is this is super exciting for us. We do have to start out by sending a shout out to our past guest and host of the After Lunch podcast, friend of yours, Ron, Mr. Michael May, for connecting us. Oh, yeah. Love Michael. But as we look back, some of your earliest work was on what if stories. What if Silver Surfer had not escaped Earth? What if Namor had joined the Fantastic Four? What if the Fantastic Four's second child had lived? Actually, that last one, my best friend said it was the most disturbing comic he ever read as a kid. Thankfully, we got to somebody with that one. Yeah. <laughs> but also stuff like, what if Silver Surfer possessed the Infinity Gauntlet? So we're seeing a theme here. So let's start out there. Was Fantastic Four an important comic to you growing up as a fan reading? Not any more so than any other comic. I mean, I was not a, you know, if if I went to the spinner rack at the drugstore or the deli or the supermarket, Fantastic Four was probably not the first one I'm picking off the, off the rack. It's more likely Avengers, X-Men, Daredevil. So just the fact that a bunch of my what ifs were more Fantastic Four oriented. I don't even know why that is, frankly. The what if issues were sort of a proving ground for new talent, both writers and artists to come in and show what they could do. You get, you, you know, you get one issue or sometimes half an issue to come in and tell a story. And if you don't screw it up too bad, they might let you do another one. It was also, frankly, in the same editorial office as Silver Surfer, which yeah. I was working on. So the editor, Craig Anderson, was always, do you have any what if issue ideas? And obviously I was very early on in my career and mm -hmm. looking for work. So it was it was a good match because the the churn on the what if title was, you know, new creative team, new story, every issue. It's kind of a pain in the ass for an editor to have to be dealt that card because you're dealing with so many different creative teams and trying to run the schedules. So whenever there was an opportunity, I would I would pick something and more often than not they got they got picked up. Oh, that's great. So you were self-generating some ideas and pitching about them. Oh yeah. The the ideas for what if almost always came from the from the writers. The editor was not the guy, you know, hey, let's do this. 
once in a while they might suggest, well, what about, you know, how about a ghost rider story? Because ghost riders, you know, important and selling right now. But for the most part, it was just you, you threw a bunch of concepts at them and they picked one or two or three. And then you sat down and figured out how, you, how to make it work. That second volume of what if, I mean, I like the original one too, but that, that was just some great, great stuff there. But what's interesting about that era. So in the 90s, it seemed, you know, as the decade was going on, that publishers would kind of hire any artist just trying to get bodies, anybody who could pick up a pencil and maybe Ape Jim Lee or Rob Liefeld at that moment, they're trying to get it done. But it must have been a little bit more difficult seemingly to break in as a writer. So what do you think, what was the secret to getting your work published and continuing to work so much with so many publishers? Um, Being friends with Jim Starlin. That's the the, the short answer. Um, Jim is the one who kind of took me by the hand and led me into Marvel and, you know, obviously also showed me showed me how to write comics. But I got my breakthrough Jim. He co-wrote my first Surfer stuff with me and then turned the book over to me. And and frankly, I've been working in comics ever since. So blame Jim Starlin for good or ill. <laughs> you know, obviously we are a Wizard Magazine-focused podcast. And I'm curious, just as a professional at this time, what was your first reaction to Wizard Magazine, you know, when it hit the scene? I think the first time I paid attention to it was when um, they had a Ron Lim cover of Silver Surfer in the Wizard Robes, which was maybe issue three or four or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of like, oh, there's the guy. There's, I think I was probably writing the writing the series at that time. So um, it was kind of cool to have your you know character on the cover of the magazine, and then it sort of became the bible, as you guys know, of the business pre-internet. What was your reaction to that status that it kind of attained and the other professionals around you? Was it a little bit like, ah, we got to deal with this? Or were you excited? I don't know that I was excited or or (laughs) indifferent or anything. It was just, you know, it was good to have something that people got excited about. Um, And it was good to have something that was very obviously a PR outlet that people paid attention to. You know, there was sort of a uh, snarky, fun attitude to it, which I think a lot of people responded to. Before I broke in, I think I was a, I was a fan of a magazine called Comic Scene, which was, you know, same type of thing, but a little more serious, a little more in-depth articles, a little more, I think, maybe artistically inclined um, in terms of covering artists and reproducing some cool art in the book. So I liked I liked that when Wizard came along. It's a little bit smaller. It wasn't magazine size. It was comic size, which is probably a fairly genius move on their part. And it was a, you know, it was a big thick tome every month because it had a price guide. In it. Not that I ever looked at the price guide because I, I didn't care what comics were worth, and I still don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's interesting because you were featured, you know, quite a bit, you know, whether it was an interview or they would quote you for different articles and things like that. But you said the PR side of things. Did you see in any way like a correlation to how much you were featured in Wizard Magazine to how much more in demand you became as a writer? Do you feel like there was any connection there at all? Boy, I, I don't know. Um, I did probably, you know, probably didn't hurt. Um, certainly when when Wizard started doing its top 10 writers list and I ended up on it more often than not, that was good because some other source told the audience, these people are important. These are the people that you should be paying attention to. This collection of straight white males are the guys that you should be paying attention to. <laughs> uh, so from that point of view, it was kind of a, you know, it was kind of a big deal. And I, and I know as the magazine grew and got to be, you know, really the, the dominant voice in the business in the 90s, um, I think certainly in part to covering image and, and being, I don't want to say a PR arm for image, but, a, you know, a good outlet for image information. A lot of the audience paid attention to it. It was, you know, it was the one place that everybody went for information. And whether that information was true or not was sort of <laughs> besides the point. 
you know, <laughs> that, it, you know, if those are really the top 10 artists and writers in the business, it didn't matter. So I think sometimes it just happened to be who they had photos of. So <laughs> Yeah, I mean, definitely. And what's interesting is, you know, you're talking about image there, but I know from talking to the Wizard editorial staff that they were huge fans of DC. And obviously of your work, they loved mentioning it in the pages. And you yourself made a huge splash in the fan community at large when you were hired by DC editor Kevin Dooley, right, to take over Green Lantern with issue 48. And you were introducing an entirely new character to the DC universe and Kyle Raider. I think the difference between Kyle and every other replacement hero, if you want to call it that, of the era is that the readers actually liked him, at least eventually. Maybe there was a little brouhaha at the beginning, but did you have any notion or hope at the time that Kyle Raider as a character would have such longevity in the DC universe and ultimately be accepted, be a part of the JLA and all those things? I certainly didn't go into it with the notion that we'll get 15 issues out of this and then that'll be the end of that and we'll bring Hal back. Um, as far as I was aware and as far as anybody at DC ever told me, there was no backdoor, you know, if this thing comes out and flops like a dead fish, we'll do this to bring Hal back. You know, there was no built-in trap door to the whole thing. It was this is what we're doing. Thankfully, it worked. And I mean, it worked sales-wise that, because that's obviously the deciding factor in a lot of this stuff is, did we sell more books post-Emerald Twilight than before? And the, the answer is unquestionably yes. We sold a lot more books. There was a lot more interest. And it was, I believe for a while, it was, you know, it was like DC's second best-selling franchise behind Batman. And then once JLA relaunched, it was behind that. But I mean, we're generally outselling Superman post-death of Superman. Because I think in a lot of ways, it was a ground floor read for a lot of people who weren't DC fans and weren't steeped in DC lore and continuity. It was a book that you could come in and read without a degree in DC continuity. And there was hopefully, because I tried to do this in the book, there was a sense of discovery as Kyle was learning his way through the DC universe. Hopefully the readers did as well. And somebody I know that definitely worked for is Steven here on the podcast with us. He is our resident Kyle Rayner super fan. So we're going to let him take over for a few minutes, lavish you with praise and share just <laughs> what the character meant to him. Sure. I mean, everything you're saying resonated with me very deeply. I've talked about this on the, on the podcast before, but I was in middle school. I was very awkward, very nerdy. And I quickly, as soon as, I mean, I was very into the whole um, Hal Jordan downfall arc. And then when Kyle came on the scene, Kyle was like my guy. And it was like wish fulfillment every month, you know, you're going to get this from the comic book store. And it's like when you're a nerdy kid and you don't, you don't have a lot to look forward to, like that's what keeps you going week after week, month after month. It meant everything to me as a kid. And, and just, you know, one question I have is what was the reaction like then versus now? Well, first, Stephen, um, you know, I have to say thank you. That's very kind and very touching, and I really appreciate it. That was one of the purposes in creating Kyle was to give readers a point of view character who was them. You know, you could see yourself in the main character. And I've made no secret about that, you know, it was very much that Spider-Man, everyman archetype where it was just a guy, not the last son of a dying planet who happens to be the most powerful being on the planet. It was not the orphan son of vast wealth. It was just a guy. It was you, basically, who won the lottery and got this magic ring. That's really where all of that came from. And I, and I think... 
one of the reasons that we were successful is because people connected to that, because it was that sort of character, which to me, to my mind, is a very Marvel sort of character, you know, feet of clay, striving to overcome their their flaws, much like, obviously, Peter Parker, which was not a thing that DC had much or any of at the time. You know, DC characters were were mostly authority figures, establishment figures, because that's the era in which they were created. So it was it was a different thing. And now I've completely lost track of what your question was. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess the main the main uh, question was what was like the fan reaction of guys who were like in their twenties back then versus you know guys our age who are coming up to you and telling you basically what I'm saying. Kyle changed my life or whatever. Well, the, I mean, the older the older guys, and I don't necessarily think they were in their 20s, but they were probably in their 30s and 40s, were pissed off, obviously, because we had taken away the thing that they wanted. And obviously, part of that equation is, well, not enough of you guys are reading the book. That's why the change was made. Um, <laughs> they weren't selling enough copies, and it, it didn't resonate with the audience. So as with anything, we always hear from the minority of the readership or the audience, whatever it happens to be, who are pissed off because they're fired up, right? Right. So we would get hate mail, certainly. And, you know, we would get maybe an equal amount of, hey, I like this guy and I like this series and now I'm reading DC books, you know, so maybe it was about equal, but we knew that ultimately there were many more people who were happy with the book and were not moved to pick up a crayon and write a threatening letter <laughs> editorial. They just read the book and enjoyed it and came back a month later for the next one. I was not one of the ones complaining, but I was also not one of the ones reading month to month. So no thanks to me. But my introduction to Kyle Rayner was in this little crossover here with The Ray, this team-up book that you wrote. And I just, I loved this story so much. This is my original copy that I've read countless times that's wild because i don't remember a thing about that story <laughs> yeah it's like they both fought dr polaris so they're gonna fight dr polaris together this time yeah it's funny you mentioned that issue because i was just at a convention in new jersey over last weekend with scott collins who drew that issue and scott told me possibly over a bottle of scotch the night before <laughs> that, that the cover of that issue which i had no idea was penciled by Scott and inked by George Perez. Wow. Oh, wow. That's a and cool I was like, history. And I was wow. like, holy shit, are you kidding me? And he's like, no, <laughs> I, have the, I have the original. They had Perez ink it. I was going to say, no wonder I picked it up. Can you talk about your relationship with Daryl Banks, who I think your collaboration on Green Lantern is like the Rosetta Stone of, of that character for me? Oh, thanks, man. Well, obviously, Daryl designed the character, designed what Kyle looks like. He designed the costume. So, you know, without Daryl, Green Lantern is not Green Lantern as as we knew it then. You know, Daryl was already assigned to the book. He was supposed to take over with issue 48. Um, mm -hmm. He was going to be the new penciler. He had done, I believe, some Legion stuff. You know, he was the new guy and offered me the book when they decided they weren't going to pursue the previous storyline that was going to be in 48, 49, and 50. They, they decided to do something more severe, more shocking, I guess. So by that point, we were already late. We were already, you know, running behind the deadline train, which is why Daryl started with issue 50 rather than issue 48, 
because he skipped to issue 50. And then we got other artists for 48 and 49, Bill Willingham and Fred Haynes. So I wrote all three of those issues at the same time. I would write five pages of one, five pages of another, five pages of, of 50 and get them all moving. And then I could go back and finish off the rest. Um, so it was, it was all sort of done at once. But when Daryl's pages from 50 started coming in, I was like, oh, this is the guy. He's great. I really, really enjoyed his stuff. And and still do. We're still friends. We're still working together on stuff, much like Ron Lim on Silver Surfer. I've done so many issues with these guys that it's like riding a bike. When I went back and did Silver Surfer Rebirth Mini that came out this year with Ron Lim, it was odd for a few pages because I hadn't written the character in 26 years or something like that. But as soon as Ron's pages started coming in, it was just like, oh, I remember what this is like. This is, you know, this is a thing I know how to do. <laughs> it's amazing. And we do have to ask, we posted something to our social media a couple weeks back uh, about a Green Lantern Watt uh, that Steven's been chasing. And you said you have several. <laughs> so, I think I do. Yeah. Wow. I never saw that anywhere except for the pages of Wizard. I don't know that they produced a lot of them, but uh, the face is purple for reasons I have no idea. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Odd facing. And obviously it hasn't. I mean, it needs to have the battery replaced. Hasn't worked in years, but it's still kind of cool. They did a decent amount of Green Lantern stuff when we were on the book. I had a t-shirt. Statues <laughs> and and I, I still see like there's an issue 49 cover t-shirt out there somewhere, which I actually don't have one of, but <laughs> I guess it's uh, a fairly iconic cover at this point. This classic uh, cover, Adam. There it is. <laughs> the, the, the Tom Brady with his Super Bowl rings cover. <laughs> <laughs> this is yep. still my favorite single issue of a comic book of all time. Pick that up at, uh, you know, my local comic book shop and had it ever since. I think I just have to ask about Alex DeWitt. I remember that issue so well. I went to like my stationery store and we were going to the barber shop afterwards and I was sitting in the waiting room with all these old guys. <laughs> and when he finds her in the refrigerator, I was just like gobsmacked. And it, again, I was surrounded by a bunch of old dudes in a barber shop and I had no one to talk to <laughs> about it. Um, so just like, you know, the impetus of that and, and, and kind of the lasting effect of it. Um, well, obviously the lasting effect of it is, you know, and now there's a whole term for it. Which, you know, which I don't have a problem with. That's, you know, that's cool. And it's it's calling it out for what it is. You know, the character of Alex, when she was introduced, I knew we were going to kill her. Um, I knew that part of Kyle's journey was that his irresponsibility and his lack of seriousness in this new role that he had inherited was going to cost someone else their life. And, you know, in retrospect, it's a Gwen Stacy moment where the girlfriend pays the price. Um, but that thought never occurred to me when I was writing it. To me, it was an Uncle Ben moment. Mm -hmm. um, it, was, it was the Uncle Ben moment of your irresponsibility destroys the person that's closest to you, that destroys the person that you love. You know, and, and I guess the, some of the, the discussion of it is that, you know, when female characters are harmed to motivate or change the male characters. And that's a, you know, it's a, it's a, valid, it's a valid commentary and a valid criticism of a comic's trope in general but she was just the person that was close to him and the one who was was frankly like a, a better option to have the ring i mean that's what that's why that's the mm. way i wrote her for that first batch of issues is that you really kind of liked her more than him he was not designed to be immediately likable to the audience i wanted the audience to come to like him over a few issues where he sort of he starts to grow into the role 
But the fact that he discovers her body in the refrigerator was actually cribbed from Stephen King's Firestarter, ah. in which Charlie, the little girl in Firestarter, I believe her mother was found either. And the you know the government agents in that book kill her mother and stuff the body in, I think, the dryer or maybe the washing machine. <laughs> but I remember reading that book as a kid, and that scene stuck with me. The horror of that discovery stuck with me. So basically, I just ripped it off. <laughs> well, it it landed. I mean, it's so hard for me as a as a middle schooler. It's still one of like those comic book moments that I think about. Like like I said, I know exactly where I was when I read that issue. So well, you were. Uh, I mean, you were you were kind of supposed to love her. She was worthy of the ring. She was worthy of him. You know, she was. She didn't deserve what she got. And that was kind of the point of it: is that bad stuff happens to good people sometimes. I want to ask you about this because obviously like at that time that Kyle was coming into being, you also had the Ben Riley Spider-Man, you know, Spider-Clone stuff going on at Marvel. So this was happening. You had probably a little bit better reaction than, uh, than Ben Riley did. And then at this time, you're also then going on to write what was probably a once in a lifetime event with DC versus Marvel. And they are the representation of Green Lantern and Spider-Man in that story. And obviously there have been crossovers before and there have been since, but never on that grand scale with the entire universes together. So I'm just curious, what are your memories just of contributing to Marvel versus DC? Obviously the writing of the issues, but like, were there concepts that were vetoed by Mike Carlin and Grunewald and all and everybody involved? Not really. You know, I've told this story before, so hopefully nobody's, nobody's uh, bored if they've heard it before, but the first meeting for Marvel versus DC was at Mark Grunewald's apartment, um, Uptown Manhattan, because they didn't want us meeting in the offices. They didn't want anybody to be like, if we met at Marvel, they didn't want to be like, well, what's what's Mike Carlin doing here? From <laughs> or the opposite for uh, Grooney being at DC's offices. So we met at Mark's apartment and went uh, went to lunch at a Mexican restaurant around the corner and basically built the whole story from that point. The concept of universes are going to meet and they're going to fight. Well, that's pretty obvious. There, there was not a lot of time spent, you know, dissecting that that idea. So we just had to come up with the uh, the architecture of well, why are they going to fight? Who's going to fight who? And I think we just we made a list of the different characters who were going to fight on an eight and a half by eleven notebook. You know, that could probably get that thing slabbed and graded if we could ever find it. Um, <laughs> And, you know, the, it was all the obvious ones, right? And then we were going to have, you know, we knew we were going to have fights that the readers were going to vote on. And then there were going to be sort of preliminary bouts that were going to be lead up to the leading up to the fights. And then Mike and Mark said, and this is what's going to happen between issues three and four of the series. And they showed us the amalgam concepts. I can't speak for Peter David because he was the other one at the meeting. But I was like, holy shit, we're actually going to do this? And we're like, <laughs> Yeah, we're gonna we're actually gonna do a dozen titles that that are just the universes rammed together. And to me, that was the you know what I think what we did at Marvel versus DC was fairly obvious. It was it was fun. It was yeah um, the expected the big fights, the big meetings between the characters you want to see. We hopefully we gave you all the stuff that you wanted. Um, and then the the amalgam stuff was just this weird crazy idea that and I was frankly stunned that we did. It was so amazing. I mean, that that was honestly, I have all the amalgam issues because that was just my favorite thing at that time. I was just like, there's more, there's more though. You know, they did the second phase, I was grabbing them. And I don't know if, if you perceive it this way, but it feels like because 
there had been such a huge, you know, influx of money and fandom in the early part of the 90s. By the mid 90s, as you know, that was kind of trickling away, and it seemed like maybe the publishers were getting a little desperate. Was that a reason, a factor? Did you ever feel like we need to do something big together so we we keep this industry going, or was it more along the lines of we're friends? You know, we got friends on no, both sides. It was, sides it was you know, I, I hate to you know, I hate to be crass about it, but it was purely a financial decision because the bubble had burst in the speculator market because comics were selling a crazy amount of copies. Every comic was selling a crazy amount of copies in the early 90s. And that really peaked with Death of Superman and then X-Men 1, X-Force 1, Turok, Chromium cover. Stores bought cases and cases and cases of that stuff. And at some point, the market, i.e., not the Wednesday Warriors who were there buying the stuff, but the pe- people who were coming in and buying like a case of X-Force number one because they thought they were going to put their kids through college by selling it in two years because that's the way it works. <laughs> uh, the, the bottom dropped out of the market and a lot of stores got left holding vast amount of stock and with, with large bills f- for the distributor that they could not pay. A lot of stores closed. So DC versus Marvel was very much an effort by DC and Marvel to come together and put together a series that was going to sell a lot of copies and hopefully pump money into those stores to keep them open. Um, ultimately, we did we did the Marvel versus DC issues pretty quickly uh, because they wanted to get them out as soon as possible and get those stores afloat. Uh, and obviously, it sold a shit ton of copies. Uh, the amalgam stuff did very well, and I think we probably yeah. kept some stores in business with it. Absolutely. Do you have a particular favorite character from the Amalgam universe? I feel like I've read about one that you're fond of, but maybe you could confirm. Well, I mean, obviously, Dr. Strange Fate School is one of the books. Yes. <laughs> they had the list of 12 titles for the Amalgam books. And, you know, the, all of the secondary characters, and all that, they, they were all up for grabs. Like, how, however, you were going to combine characters for your supporting cast and villains and all that stuff. They were generally not written in stone. It was kind of first come, first serve. And when we were at Mark's apartment and they read through this list and they got to Dr. Strange Fate and I said, I'm doing that one or I'm walking out of here right now, (laughs) which which was obviously bullshit. I wasn't walking out of there at all. Um, But those are two of my favorite characters. And I was, you know, I was determined that I was going to get my hands on that one. And, And I think it was Carlin who said, yeah, okay. That's fine. <laughs> and then I believe a week or two later, I, the editorial teams got wind of what was going on. They were they were let in on the on the process. And I went to the editor who was assigned Doctor Strange Fate, which was Dan Thorsland, and I said, I don't care who you get to pencil it, but we got to get Kevin Nolan ink because this book has to look like Kevin Nolan. And he said. Well, how about we get Garcia Lopez to draw it? Oh, that'd be just fine. Yes, that's the only time I've had stage fright writing an issue in my life. Um, <laughs> I because I put so much pressure on myself that oh my god, Garcia Lopez is going to draw this issue. I have to be worthy of Garcia Lopez, and I kind of sat on the couch in my office for two weeks just not producing anything because I I was uh, I was quaking in my boots. And then somewhere along the line, I realized I could write a phone book and it was going to look great because Garcia Lopez was drawing it. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> um, now, I got to ask you about this, Rod, because, you know, just jumping back real quickly to, you know, the fallout for Marvel versus DC and then the Amalgam, there is a character that I want to understand your involvement in either creating, certainly writing, but there was a follow-up to uh, DC versus Marvel, which was DC Marvel All Access. 
featuring the character of Axel, aka Access, that was touted as being shared by Marvel and DC. He exists, he belongs to both universes and all of that. So I'm just curious because I, I like the All Access miniseries a little bit more than Marvel versus DC because they were teaming up more rather than fighting. And so I, I really got a kick out of that and the great adventures you wrote there. But where did Axel come in? Is he just like a plot device that you guys were using or was he something that you had a hand in saying, hey, this would be a good character to throw in? Yeah, well, I mean, he's, yeah, essentially he's a plot device. Yeah. <laughs> so, he, you know, he's the guy who could go back and forth between the universes for reasons that I don't actually remember i don't know why he could do that nobody else could but you know obviously in the fine tradition of peter parker and matt murdoch and everybody else who has the same continent at the front of their names that's where we got axel asher from yeah he was the device that we could use to pull characters from one universe to the other and yeah we did the the all access series which was to me just a lot of fun and actually had um in terms of writing i think i probably could stretch myself a little bit more with that because we didn't have two entire universes of characters that had to beat that living hell out of each other. We could, you know, I could do more of a story. So uh, I enjoyed doing those and, and Butch, Butch guys through the first one. Yeah. Which was very cool. And he actually, he actually, actually shows up in an issue of Green Lantern. Oh, I got to go find that now. You know, I I... Issue, issue 87. I'm not sure which, which issue it is. But there's no rumblings uh, behind the scenes. You want to tell us about that Axel may be coming back. Another crossover in the world. Uh, my, my suspicion is you'll never see Axel again. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, because you know, because he's, he's co-owned by Marvel and DC, so they both have to agree. When Warner Brothers and Disney get desperate enough, just like Marvel and DC were in the 90s, and they have to do the multiverse between themselves, maybe then. Yeah, maybe, maybe we'll see him then. I, you know, it's it's a little bit unfortunate because like all of that stuff is out of print now. You know, there's no omnibus of you know the Marvel versus DC stuff. There's no collection of the amalgam stuff. It's just because it's shared copyright, shared ownership. And look, in the scheme of things, we'd probably sell a you know a lot of big fat hardcover copies of a Marvel versus DC omnibus. But in the scheme of real money, the kind of money that movie and TV things generate it's not that much it's kind of couch cushion money to large uh, corporations so i live in hope because i would love to have a big fat marvel versus dc book to put on my shelf then i would also love to have the you know the royalty check that goes with it um <laughs> but look we i you know it obviously sold very well at the time and the paperbacks that we the, you know take paperback collections that we did do with that stuff at the time sold very well i wish i still had a few of my copies left i mostly gave them out to kids for halloween and stuff wow <laughs> It's um, a pretty good trick-or-treating experience, yeah. if you ask me. So, yeah, it would be lovely to have that stuff back, but it was great that they put JLA Avengers back into print for George Perez before it yeah. passed. That was really cool, and that was for a very specific reason and for a very specific cause. Maybe at some point it'll happen, but I can't envision it in the near future. Okay, well, closing out the crossover talk, because you've just you've been involved in so many, like I assume Batman Tarzan was again you pitching and saying, I need to put these characters together. Let me do it, please. Is that true? Absolutely. Because at, at that point, I had done a number of crossovers. The crossover relationship between DC and Dark Horse is very good, thanks to Aliens and Predator. And Dark Horse had the Tarzan license. And I've always been a huge Tarzan fan. So so I, I pitched... I don't remember who I pitched, whether it was DC or Dark Horse, but probably DC. And they went, yeah, okay, that's cool. You know, because there was, the industry was in a bit of a downturn, you know, late 90s in terms of sales. So 
they were willing to do that kind of stuff. They were willing to do those kind of crossovers because they would sell pretty well and bring some eyes. It was, uh, you know, if you could come up with a reason to do a fun comic, you could probably get away with it. So, Well, could you think um, of any of that era or since that you tried pitching that still like, you know, you got it on your hard drive somewhere like, I want this story to see print someday and it just never quite got approval. They never saw the, the dollar signs. Well, there was a there was a there was a Batman Tarzan sequel, oh. um, which would have brought tar- because in the first one, Batman goes to Africa and they have a they have an adventure in a lost Egyptian city that's right. in the jungle. The sequel would have brought Tarzan to Gotham City, and when when Tarzan's uh, golden lion Jad Balja gets kidnapped by a great white hunter and brought to Gotham to be in a circus where. A couple of acrobats might get killed. Might be a clown at the circus who figures into the story. Hmm. Um, so, um, so I had I had the sequel all figured out. We couldn't we couldn't get that one off the ground. And then um, my other my other one that I wanted to do was John Carter Superman um, because wow. they're basically the same character. John Carter is, in a lot of respects, the forefather of Superman. Mm-hmm. So that would have been what if baby Kal-El's rocket ship crashes on Barsoom instead of Earth oh. and Martian Manhunter would have showed up. In it. Oh, love it. Oh, oh that'd be cool. Perfect. <laughs> Jumping over to Image, though, because another book you had such a long run on, right? And, and dealing with Top Cow and all that uh, is Witchblade. You, you jumped out with issue 80 and you were there like seven years Writing Witchblade, is that right? I, I think it was actually closer to 10 years. I think my wow. first my first run on it was seven years, and I was uh-huh. off for a year right. and a half, two years, and then I came back and finished off the series. So, yeah, it was probably about 10 years altogether. What made you stay on the book that long? Why did that relationship work so well? Or was it the character? Like, what, what was going on there? I just liked it, you know, I, and I had no idea that I was going to like it. You know, it was a it was a series that was offered to me when I finished up at CrossGen. CrossGen fell apart. I left and I got calls like literally the same day from Dark Horse to do Star Wars and from Top Cow to do initially a run on Darkness and then or a handful of issues of Darkness. And then they asked me to take over Witchblade. And I had honestly never read an issue of Witchblade in my life. I mean, I knew what it was. I was familiar with it, but it was just not my cup of tea. But I said, you know, when they said, you know, can you take on Witchblade? Well, uh, okay, let me let me see. And they sent me a big batch of books, like a huge box. The VS man came came staggering up the the driveway with uh, with this huge box with every Witchblade issue in it. And you know, I read the first batch and skimmed the rest and sort of got an idea of well, I think there's I think there's something cool here. I think there's a there's a cool concept here. But I want to do it my way. I want to, if you, if you want the book to be about her clothes falling off and she runs around in a metal bikini, that's probably not not something that I want to do. I don't have any problem with that at all. But it just would be, you know, story wise, it was not going to be of interest to me. So I said, if you want me to do this, I want to make I want to make her into a character that you care about, that you are engaged in, and you're concerned about what happens to her when she's being a cop, when she's at home in her apartment, when she's wielding the witchblade. You know, kind of. In a lot of ways, same thing I did with Kyle was, you know, put some flesh on those bones and and give you a reason to come back every month. And to their credit, Top Cow just said, yeah, you you do what you do. And that was the last time we discussed that particular aspect of the book at all. Um, they just let me run with it. And I found that the character 
and the concept were elastic enough that I could tell any kind of story I wanted to. We could do supernatural, we could do police procedural, crime, superhero, science fiction. You know, we could we could run the gamut of any sort of genre because Sarah Pizzini was the was the one constant in the book. We, you know, she was going to be who she was, and we could go in a lot of different directions. That's so interesting. And you mentioned CrossGen. That was actually the next question that we were going to talk to you about because that was uh Something that as we've talked to the different wizard staff members, they've talked about that they you know, were paid a lot of money to promote cross-gen comics. It seemed like a very well-funded at the beginning situation where the talent, just the roster on those books, yourself included, everybody was just like, whoa, whoa, what is going on here? So can you tell us briefly your, your feeling about your output through cross-gen and just what that experience was like of being brought into that fold? You know, it was an adventure. It was an exciting, it was an exciting uh, time where this w- this new thing was being built, and you weren't going to be a freelancer. You had a real job. You had vacation time and a health plan and a four hundred one k and all of those things that aren't that interesting when you're. 22, but are suddenly more interesting when you're 32 and have a family. So that's, I think that's why it was attractive to a lot of people. I still think that probably the best collection of artists in one spot at one time in the history of this business. And creatively, uh, there was a lot to like. Creatively, I was very satisfied for the most part. To me, the, the, the overarching universe stuff was not of much interest to me. And that's why it doesn't appear a lot in most of my books. Um, but but overall, it was, it, was a, it was a pleasure to do other stuff than superheroes. Um, I think that was also an attraction to a lot of the, the artists who like, didn't have to draw people in capes anymore. They could draw lots of different cool stuff, you know, fantasy. Yeah, like what, what you were doing with Sojourn. Yeah, just all of that. Like and the art mixed with your story was just out of this world on that book. It was a great noble experiment. The boss had feet of clay. The money ran out. Um, a lot of his money was tied up in the dot-com boom, the tech boom. And um, when that bubble burst, like half of his wealth went away. Half of the money that was there to run the company, when all of us were pitched the opportunity to come there, we were told, you know, the, the, the company can fund itself for five years if we never sell a book. That turned out to be not the case because some of that money went away. Um <laughs> But it was a cool way to, um, to produce comics. And it was certainly a way to learn about producing comics. Um, I learned more about putting a comic together from start to finish there than, than anywhere else before or since. I, I just want to ask you here as we get ready to close out. Uh, you know, obviously, you, know, you got Kyle on the cover of Wizard. There were a lot of newer characters in the 90s also that sometimes didn't make it. He, he was on there. But I'm, just, I'm wondering, as we've been talking here uh, of that era... Are there any other uh, interactions with Wizard or any other stories that have kind of shaken loose in your brain memories that you have? A, a couple a couple specific ones. That issue that you just held up with Kyle on the cover, I think that's the one that I'm in with a, a Green Lantern battery and a ring and a mask. And they so Wizard set up a photo shoot for me at a studio in Manhattan. I'm trying to think of where it was. It was somewhere around Greenwich Village. And the, the, they said, oh, we're going to do a photo shoot with you. And I didn't really think anything of it. You know, okay, well, I'm going to the city and you know, we'll do a photo shoot. And so I walked in and it was the photo studio. I don't even remember the photographer's name. But like you walk in and the first thing you saw was this huge reproduction of a photo that the photographer had taken of Paul Newman. Oh, wow. 
And I was like, oh, this is not just a guy who's going to, you know, take some headshots. Um, <laughs> and I didn't even meet the photographer until we were ready to shoot. He was just, he was off doing something else. So I had his assistants and it was, you know, it was a very sort of New York artsy kind of thing. <laughs> and they awesome. were like, okay, so we've, we've got this mask for you and this leotard. And I'm like, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> <laughs> uh, because they had gotten the, they had you know comics from anything, but they had, been sent some comics and they were like, oh, well, this is, this is cool. This light and all of that stuff is cool. And so we ended up, you know, me being in that silly costume and standing around the leotard. And uh, in order to, in order to make the ring beam glow, because this might've been, I don't know, pre-Photoshop where we could have just made it up. <laughs> I had to hold up the ring and they shot liquid nitrogen from a can. Oh my God. At my hand, like from off camera. And obviously the liquid nitrogen was very cold. So, so we had to take breaks through the process because my hand was freezing up. I mean, it was, oh it was painful. Wow. It was so cold. Yeah. So that's, that's where that photo shoot came from. And that's it was awesome. A very, it was a wild experience. <laughs> um, and then the other stuff, the other stuff that, because I was living in the Hudson Valley where I grew up, upstate New York, and we were not that far, like an hour and a little bit away from, from the wizard offices. And, the, you know, the wizard guys knew that I hung out with the comics community up there, which was Jim Starlin, Bernie Wrightson, Terry Austin, Fred Hembeck, Joe Staten, the assorted others. And we had a we had a weekly volleyball game. And, you know, amongst the, the comics people at the Woodstock Elementary School. Um, and so one time the wizard guys came up and we actually played them <laughs> and they thought, and, and they really felt like, you know, they were, but they were, they were younger than the, than most of the group that I was playing with. And they thought, well, we're going to go up there and kick their asses. And they were disabused of that notion. They, they, came up, <laughs> they, they came up and we beat him and then we went out to dinner together. That's wow. great. Rob, we want to thank you for joining us. And we want to ask, where can people find you online? What are the latest projects you want them to seek out? Um, let's see. They can find me online uh, at Ron Mars on Twitter. There's an Instagram account that I don't pay a whole lot of attention to that I should start. And my website is ronmars.com, which is due for an overhaul. It's, it's in process, but isn't quite up there yet. Um, let's see. New projects. The trade paperback collection of Almost American which is an actual spy story um, based on a husband and wife who fled from Russia and ended up in the United States. It's their real life story. That just came out from Aftershock. The fourth issue of Project Superpowers that I'm co-writing with Andy Lanning just came out from Dynamite, which, which apparently has a, has a printing error in it. I just found that oh. out today. <laughs> so the fifth issue will be out uh, next month. Let's see, what else have we got? Trade paperback of Silver Surfer Rebirth will be out in early August, I believe. The collected edition of my Swamp God serial that was in Heavy Metal Magazine will be out, I think, in October. Andy Lanning and I are starting on a new serial for Heavy Metal that hasn't been announced yet. Rick Leonardi and I did a OGN for Naval Institute Press called Blue Angel, which is 130-some pages of story. That'll be out in February of 2023. It's, it's finished except for some dialogue tweaks. And there's other various and sundry things that are on my plate, some of which, actually most of which haven't been announced yet. Um, and I'm also part of the narrative team on uh, Diablo 4 for Blizzard. Oh, cool. Rob, really, thank you so much. But Steven, do you want to give a final send off? I just want to say thank you. You're my favorite comic book writer. Thank you for all that you've done. Steven, that's very kind. It's been, um, you know, it's allowed me to not have a real job in a long time. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to keep it that way. 
And there you have it, our interview with the one and only Ron Mars. Hope you enjoyed those behind-the-scenes tales, especially regarding his amazing photo shoot with Wizard Magazine. Of course, you can check out our social media at Wizards Comics on Twitter, at Wizards underscore comics on Instagram for some highlights of Ron's appearances in the magazine as well as some of his comics work. You know, Steven's got all those wonderful Green Lantern issues. We'll get some shots of those up as well. So we want to thank you so much for checking out this episode and stay tuned because we have episode 61 coming up next week and Michael is back with a lot of fun conversation. But until next time, we're closing the files.